There are times and seasons in life, there are days in life where I seriously lack motivation. Do you know that feeling? Do you know the feeling of kind of lacking motivation for whatever it is? You know you you should be doing, or at least you could be doing, and you just lack motivation for that, whatever that is. Uh, For our family, we see that not just in our kids, but I see it in me. And I think our kids can sense it in me too. They can sense when I'm lacking motivation. They can sense when I'm discouraged. And so we want to be honest about that with them and say, yeah, daddy's discouraged right now. I'm lacking motivation. And there are ways and means that God gives us to help us. So in our family worship, in our daily worship, it might be you're a single person living at home and that's your daily worship is a wonderful opportunity to remind yourself in a daily way of God's grace for you. You're in a household, perhaps, with other housemates. Your household worship or your family worship if you've got kids. But for us lately, we've been, we found this song and we'd been singing this song that reminds me in moments where I'm lacking motivation, reminds me in moments where I need it in our family worship, our daily worship. This song goes like this. It's very simple. And the reason we picked it is a little four-year-old can sense our lack of motivation. A little four-year-old can sense our, our discouragement. And, and she needs this song too. Although she can't read the words, we print it off for each one of our kids. She can't read the words, but it's got a beat. And the beat goes like this. It's very simple. I know that my Redeemer lives. He's not dead. He lives. Glory. Hallelujah. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. Glory, hallelujah. Shout on, pray on. We're gaining ground. Glory, hallelujah. See, I think that we live in a world and a time and a place where we as the church look around and feel like we are losing ground. We live in a time and a place that runs on discouragement. Where we are frail, we get sick, we die. Where we need to hear the next line, the dead's alive and the lost is found. Glory, hallelujah. So we've been singing that. Now a little four-year-old gets it. She gets it. Chloe, see, she sings this and she gets it. That when we feel like it's in days of darkness or when hope is lost or we're just lacking motivation to keep living the Christian life, there is one main reason to keep going. He lives. He lives. He's risen. We do live in a world of discouragement. Our children grow up in it. Our teenagers live conflicted in it. And the grown-ups feel like we're done with it. We're overwhelmed by it. But how are we going to have motivation? It can't be like my old rugby coach who would shout at us from the sideline. He wasn't, I don't think he was a trained coach at all. We, we needed a coach, we found him at the pub. And he shouted at us at the sideline, Get some mongrel, India! Which, I'm not really sure what that means. Get some mongrel, India! He would shout at us at halftime, If they score again, no one gets water. 
Now, that didn't really work to motivate us. It kind of like, have you seen demotivational posters? There's, there's such a thing as called, you know, the motivational poster is the cat reaching into the air. You can do it! The demotivational poster is the cat's not even trying. We live in a world of demotivation. And when we see a lack of motivation, and even for living the Christian life, dare I say it, there are sometimes churches or preachers who see it, and what do we do? We just scold you. We look at a lack of motivation, so we scold one another into being motivated, and does that work? It's like my old rugby coach. No, it doesn't. Most of us, myself included, are so tempted to find satisfaction then in other things. Things that don't fill us, things that leave a bitter aftertaste. And then there's some of us that get stuck in our past. So easily stuck. We get stuck in our histories, stuck in our faults and our failings, stuck in our sin. And we really lack a motivation to keep going for him. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, right now he speaks into these things. So that when we read this, God speaks to these things in our lives right here in Reforming Church. Paul writes with his own life in view. He he writes in the context of his own life and what has gone before in this passage. And he writes to those who have tender consciences, tender hearts, tender minds who wonder, how can I keep going for Jesus? And whilst we might know that he lives, one of our struggles is not believing that and be living like it's true. And Paul writes into this and he writes for us this passage, which we're going to read right now. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that... I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining Forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any one of you think anything otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And he let us hold true to what we have attained. How can I keep going? It's by grace. When you read verse 12, you'll note there, and this is where we we had a break for a couple of weeks, and we're really thankful to Rory and Ryan who preached a couple of those sermons recently, showing us the gospel again and again. And we had a break from Philippians, but we see in verse 12 that Paul writes 
about something without particularly naming it in verse 12 to start with. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. And then he says later, but I press on to make it. So what is this? What is it? What is Paul saying? This, this something he's looking forward to. That's what the immediate context in verse 11 helps us. In verse 11, a couple of weeks ago we saw this. Paul writes that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in today's message, Paul is preempting something so important for us. He's preempting something that for us is tempting. We are often tempted, even and especially us as believers, if you're a believer here, and not all of us are yet, Perhaps you're looking into Christianity and we exist for you to see and look into Christ. But for those of us who are believers, let me tell you, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, we believers, we've got our own struggles. That's why we need to keep hearing the good news of Jesus every week, the gospel, for here's our temptation in the Christian life. We look back at the moment we believed, we first believed in Jesus and knew that we were saved and safe in him. And ever since then, we get distracted or discouraged or we're tempted to not believe that Christ keeps us safe. We're tempted to believe the words of the world that it's all by performance. That you've got to do more, you've got to get more, strive more. And often one of the things that Christians most struggle with is we mix up justification and sanctification. Now, I know I've used two big words there, but those words you can find in the Bible, and the Bible gives us context to define them. If you don't have a Bible, take one of ours. That's yours, our gift to you. And read through it. And look, but here's a simple explanation. Justification is a declaration from God that if you trust in Jesus, you are justified before God. That is, you don't have to justify yourself anymore. We're all going to die. As we said here from this, this pulpit, the death rate still hovers at 100%. We're all going to die. And all of us are going to meet him. We're going to meet our maker. And the default position of the human heart is to attempt to justify ourselves. I've lived a good life. I, 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 didn't you see the good things I did? Oh, yes, there were some bad, but I, we tempted to justify ourselves. We can't. And now we don't have to. Because our justification is in Christ and what he's done for us. Sanctification is we are set apart now as Christ's and we grow more in that set apartness. But here's what happens. Christians mix them up. We start to believe that our justification is in our sanctification, it's in our growth. And so when we look at our growth chart of our Christian life, and if you wanted to chart it, you probably could and spend the afternoon thinking, how have I gone in the last year? It would look up and down. Mine looks like this. It goes up and down like this. And then we start to think, well, that's the way God looks at me, and therefore we start to base our justification on our sanctification. We mix them up. Paul wants to show us here, we don't attain, get the risen life to come 
by our own work, our own effort. We are not the ones who, by our performance, bring God the performance chart and justify ourselves and say, can I have eternal life? That's not how we get it. This passage is, one, is where Paul writes and clearly shows how something extraordinary has happened. We get it entirely by grace. Have a look in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or, or am already perfect. That could be a great creed or confession of anyone, couldn't it? In our call to worship, we, have, we kind of had a creed from Revelation 1. We have for Lord's Supper creeds. That could be our creed. I'm not already perfect. It could be a bumper sticker. But here's the next bit that's so crucial to believe. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, not by way of performance, not by because I can get it, but because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's like the state of origin. I know who I'm talking with. We're Victorians, so maybe you understand what that is, and maybe you don't. But look, my, my background is rugby, union, and there was a big game on last night. It was international game, Wallabies, England. We lost again. That's just what happens. It's, we write the book that way. But there's this other game, it's rugby league, and there's a state of origin. I think Victorians are more aware of that one because they love... Who would not love... Which Victorian would not love to watch New South Wales and Queensland fighting each other? Like, that's a game Victorians can get into, Right? Yeah, I get to watch two other states duke it out. I'm in, right? So some Victorians have taken up. So State of Origin is a rugby league game, and it's a three-part series. But you don't need to know rugby league even. You don't even know to do a sport. Like, think of anything that's a three-part thing, a movie trilogy in three parts. You know, there was, well, I grew up in the 80s, and so there was the original better Star Wars until they messed around with it and added things to the front and the end. But there was always the three-part thing, right? So the, the good guys win in the first one, the bad guys win in the second one in Star Wars. This is just my paraphrased version. But the third one, not to give it away if you haven't seen it yet, the good guys win. But imagine a three-part series where the good guys or your team or whatever wins the first two. What happens in the third? Does that mean that the team or the good guys, does that mean that then they go into the third one going, well, we don't have to do anything. We're just going to sip our lattes and play a lazy game. No. In fact, if you ever see a three-part series in the first two or one and you happen to be watching those other two states duke it out, they, the winners, they know they've won. They've won the first two. They play extra hard. Why? They're not nervous. No, they're not nervous. In fact, the opposite. They know they've already won. So they go out there and they play hard because they know they've won. They know it's already their own. That's the Christian life now. We don't play nervous. We don't fret and worry. Does God not love me today because I've messed up this morning? Christ Jesus has made you his own. If you believe in Christ, you trust in him with your life and death, he's already made you his own. Don't play nervous, friends. Go out and play hard. 
Live your life with grace-filled gusto. And so we press on. That's how we press on. We don't press on going, I've got to get there. What if I don't get there? We press on because he has made me his own. Verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Here's Paul. Look, we've seen Paul earlier in chapter 3. A couple of weeks ago we saw this. Paul gives his testimony often in his letters. Uh, we see it in the book of Acts. You see Paul's life on show. All the dark things of Paul's life. Paul gives us the equivalent of his own search history. Often. He doesn't hide over the fact of what he's done or what he's thought or how he's lived or how he's unloved. He writes it in here. Here's where I messed up astronomically. And he says, I want to forget the past. He shows how important this is by using a present tense of this verb. He says, now, completely, it's done. I'm forgetting it. It's gone. Forgetting his past sins. Forgetting his past wrongs. Earlier in verse 6, he talked about his persecutions. This is a man who would remember the rounding up of women and children, of dads, of men, of rounding up of families and households, of singles with aspirations of life ahead, and because they own the name of Christ, rounding them up for death. Here is a man who perhaps, if he let it get that way, his dreams would haunt him, his nightmares of the past, but he says, I want to forget it, not be paralyzed with guilt and despair. But also, not just forgetting his sins, but in the context of what's happening in chapter 3, forgetting his self-righteousness. We've often said it again here. We don't just confess our sins at Reforming Church. We confess our own righteousness. We confess our self-righteousness where we attempted to find our rightness, our justification in and of ourselves. We confess that we perhaps have thought when we compare ourselves to other people, well, at least I'm not like them. Kind of like the Pharisee and the tax collector. We confess that perhaps we've thought subconsciously, maybe I have made it. Paul is saying, I want to leave that behind. And one thing I do is now look to the future. He presses on. Now, pressing on is not simply a stoic thing to do. It's not just a, a kind of a thing we do without joy. In fact, the most repeated word in this letter is joy. It's rejoice. That's why this series is called Joyful Community. He, he actually says, I press on now with a joy. I press on because of the joy set before me, Hebrews 12 style. I press on with this focus. I'm going to admit a few things in this sermon, and one of the things I'm going to admit, which you get, is I'm not a professional athlete. Um, 
but I have been in running races before. I'm going to guess most of us have. It's possible you've never been in a running race. If you feel like you're missing out, we can arrange one over morning tea. We have an indoor stadium here. Weather won't stop that happening. It's a concrete floor. We'll, you know, we'll look into the safety. But I've been in running races. Here's my problem in running races. As a kid growing up, I'm in the running race, and I'm running this way because I'm looking around. And I'm looking around and going, oh, wow, they're going fast, faster than me. Everyone's going faster than me, actually. And, uh, and, and I get distracted. I get distracted from what I'm running towards. Isn't that a picture of often our lives? We miss the prize of the future. What is the prize? Verse 14, it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm running, I'm pressing on towards that. Now here is a good diagnostic test for a Christian person or a person who says they believe in God or perhaps you want to go to heaven when you die. Here is a good diagnostic test around that belief. Because the prize is, in verse 14, given to us explicitly. Here's the prize. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the prize of eternal life is not a reward for good work. It is not a reward for good service as a Christian. It is not that you are a good, fine, upstanding person or you had good values. And look particularly at that prize. The prize in itself is not an eternal holiday. The prize is not even just you being in heaven itself. Often, I think even as Christians, we, we, we tend to think about the prize. You know, what I'm looking forward to when I die is just at least not being in hell. We read in Revelation 1, that wailing of missing out. So we just, I just, just don't want to miss out. But the prize is not just being in heaven and, well, welcome to heaven. We've got many rooms. Uh, here's yours. It's been organized. All your dreams come true. There's your golf course or your rugby pitch. Uh, perhaps it's all the Star Wars episodes on repeat. That's heaven. So we, we design heaven ourselves. And I think heaven will be like this. And we easily get into thinking, I'm looking forward to heaven because, you know, it's going to be a little bit better than the world, hopefully. I'm dead anyway, I have to die, so 100%, I get that. Going to heaven, and we think of the prize as just being in heaven. That's not what the prize is. Do you see what the prize is in verse 14? It's having Christ. It's being with Christ. So here's the diagnostic test. If you're not excited about being with the one who rescues you from sin and death, if you're not excited about being in heaven with Christ, why not? What is the prize for you? Because it may not be Christ and you may need to have some kind of rethinking, realigning of your heart to work out what is it you love most. Knowing the one who first loved you. No one else died for your sin. Nothing else did that for you. No one else rose for your hope. No one else did that for you. But Christ. Is your prize Christ? If you lost everything, 
in this life, would you be absolutely devastated to death or would you say, I still have Christ? Is Christ your prize? Look at Paul's life. Paul had a great career, let's call it. He was ambitious, he was planning churches, he was teaching, training people, had a team of 70, perhaps at one point. Paul had a lot going on. He's writing letters, correspondence. They name him today as one of the most influential people in antiquity. Here's the Apostle Paul. When he writes this letter, where is he? He's in prison. His career has been taken away from him. It's collapsed in that sense. He's not able to go out and plant churches and meet with people and encourage them and preach in that sort of freedom. He's not able to continue his ministry he's previously once done with ambition. He wanted to go to Spain, he tells us in the letter to the Romans. Never gets there. He ends up in prison and dies there. But he says this in this letter, Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Is that you? Is that me? Do we think of Christ as our supreme, surpassing worth of treasure? He is the only treasure that lasts forever. And we need to encourage one another to focus on him. Paul says in verse 17 that he wants us to join in imitating him. He wants us as a church to all be focused on Christ. Now is the time to press on as Team Jesus. Now is the time to focus on Christ. Friends, we need one another in this. I need you. And I think you need me. Not because of me, but because we actually need one another. I want you to notice something. You look at verses 12 to 14. It's all Paul so far. But he's saying, this is me to imitate me. Then you look at verse... 15 and 16, what happens? It becomes about us. All the words change to plural. It becomes about the church. We need one another, friends. We need one another as church. We often fall to the ground, don't we? And then we lack motivation to get back up. We just lack the wherewithal to be able to get back in the race. We need, by grace, one another given to us. We're gifts to one another. When you hit the ground again and you're fallen and you've failed and you're frayed at the edges, press on and help others to press on. When we ache and life hurts and there are distractions and temptations, press on. Perhaps you're now entering middle age. I'm, I am. I'm in middle age now. And middle-aged men, there's this whole thing going on, you know, the mid midlife crisis. Maybe it's women too. But I know in men, I know in myself, we face it. We, <gasps> I was once 30 and fit, and now I'm not. Like, I'll be, in 10 years' time, 55. 
and then 65, and then 75, and then 85, and then dead. Friends, if you're in the second half of your life, if you've just turned 30 even today, someone has, you might be feeling like the second half of your life or that last quarter, there's just no way I can press on. You know what you and I need is one another to press on. When hope seems to evaporate, when you're weary, you can press on. And in verse 14, when Paul talks about the goal, here's how he wants us to help one another press on. The word for goal here in verse 14 is a, is a Greek word. We don't like to kind of bust out Greek words or Hebrew words too much, but the word is interesting, I think. The word for goal in the Greek is skopos. So we get the word scope from. Paul speaks about the prize, the goal, with a focus of as if you're looking through a telescopic scope. You're changing the magnification, you're adjusting for the wind, adjusting for the winds of life. But you get that target and you focus on Christ and you help others to focus on Christ. And then when you look around, verse 15... And you see a church of people here, but over morning tea in a few moments, and you have conversations with people, and you you get that people are unsure, perhaps unstable in things. Perhaps they feel unworthy, all the uns. What do we do? We don't scold them into it, we don't push them into it, pressure them into it, say, you need to strive on, strive, achieve. I had someone in my life once who told me constantly, your 40s rust is when you need to strive. I was just never going to make it. I was never going to meet the expectations of that. I don't need that. That's what the world gives me. What do I need? I need a word of God's grace. And I need the gentle tenderness of his word in verse 15. And here it is. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any one of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Here's what happens in church world, preacher world. I think we look around at those who are growing and they're not yet mature perhaps. I mean, who could even grab that label mature? I'd be dare to put it not myself. But we look around at those who are not mature and what we do is we kind of scold them in our minds. I wish you could just get it together. Well, preachers are tempted to do that. Just kind of get it together. Pull yourself up. Come on. It's not the way God's word works here. Notice this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. A word to preachers. Here's a training moment. Don't rely on your personality or the strength of your personality to push and scold people into doing something, to change people. That's not how God works. Rely on the power of his word. Do you trust that God can actually do it? Just speak his tender, gracious word of Christ. It's God who does the powerful work in us by his spirit. God will work and he will reveal. And how do we know that? I think there could be people that could look at Paul when he was known as 
by his Hebrew name Saul and think, oh, I just wish this guy was out of our life. Or I just wish this guy would get it together. I think people could look at me and say that. I think the, the, the preachers that I sat under as I was growing up and quite immature, and probably still am in many ways, could be tempted to think, I just wish Russ could get it together. I wish he could just understand that Christ Jesus has made him, him his own. But instead, people patiently open God's word of grace in Christ and prayed and relied that God will reveal this to you. And what's Paul doing as he writes this? Here's what's even more amazing. He knows he's writing a letter to the church that as an apostle is scripture. He's banking on that even if the Philippians think differently, Paul's writing God's word here will reveal where to see thinking changed. This is our gracious God. The God of human imagination is not like this. We saw the God contest in the kids' talk. Our society doesn't have Baal, but our society creates our own gods. So whenever you hear a politician or a, a thought leader or an influencer say, oh, I think God would be like this, you know what they've done in that sentence? They have made an idol. I think God would be like this. Why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Because that's what I think the God is like. How would you know? The only way you're going to know what God is actually like is to listen to him. To actually see what he's like. To look into his character. To see him in Jesus Christ. And when you look into Jesus, you see a God who, unlike the world's view of God, he doesn't huff at you. He doesn't scold you into it. He doesn't watch you from the sidelines to throw his arms in the air and tell you to get some more mongrel into you. God is gracious towards you. And he speaks to you by his spirit-breathed word. Friends, keep going by grace, by his grace. I'm not a professional athlete, as I've said, and you can tell, but I've learned a lot from just listening to professional athletes. And one of the things I've learnt recently, which took me a while to get, but being an athlete is, is 10% muscle set and 90% mindset. That if you want to get the prize, you can have all the, the muscle twitch strings, whatever they call those things in your legs that you know, enable you to run fast. Someone else is nodding. I'm getting vaguely right here. You can have all the ability to understand the field of play uh, that your, your muscle memory adjusts to, but it's actually before you get on the field, before you get on the track, it's that mindset that says, I know what my prize is. So here's where we finish. I just want to ask you, I want to ask me, because this passage gets us to ask this question. Where is your mindset? Does Jesus, does thinking of Jesus, 
Is your mind scoped and set on Jesus? Is that what you are focused on? Here it is. Does Christ captivate you? Does Christ captivate you so much that you would forget the past? That you would forgive others? Does Christ captivate you in such a way that other sins now don't? Does Christ captivate you so that he becomes your vision? What is your mindset? Does your thought life become dreams of what you get out of life rather than Christ who is your life? Would your daily routine indicate that you believe God made this day and I'm actually one day closer to heaven? Is that how it shapes your life? One day closer to Christ, being in his presence forever. Are our spending practices shaped by our worship of Christ? Or do we pursue other things and pay dearly for them, mind you, because those things are more dear to us? Is the way we serve with our lives because we see the prize of Christ or do we lack motivation and we just stop looking at Christ entirely, which is a dangerous place to be in? In the race of life, there is no need to live for things that don't last. There's no need to settle for second best when you get the prize who is Jesus and he gives it to you by grace. We read Psalm 16 as our cross-reference in the Old Testament. I love those words in Psalm 16. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Knowing Christ, having Christ, being with Christ, pleasure forevermore. We get Jesus. We get him. Him who gave himself for you. That's the prize. No one else died for your sin and rose for your hope, but he did. He gives himself on that cross for you. He is the prize. And when he rises to new life, he promises you, you have new life if you trust him. He is the prize. Christ has won it for us. Keep going by grace, friends. And if you're looking into these things, if you're looking into who Jesus is, I want you to look into this passage just one more time and before we pray, hear these words. I want you to look at these words in verse 14. That if now you turn to Christ and trust in him, you too can press on, not with nervousness, but with grace-filled gusto, toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's calling you now. He is saying to you from his word, come to me, trust me, you get me. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we know that our Redeemer lives. Glory, hallelujah. What a comfort that sweet sentence gives. Glory, hallelujah. We thank you that Jesus is not just a ticket to heaven. He is the person to be prized, the person of God who gives himself for us. 
Father, we are asking now that we would help one another focus on him. For those of us who are not ready to think this way and are still working things out, help us to be gracious with them and we're asking for you to reveal that to them. For you by your word, even here in Philippians, to show them the wonder, the grace of how Christ Jesus has made us his own so that we can all keep going by grace. This is our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.